Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event. Each year, we celebrate the lifelong literary achievements of one of New Zealand's great writers, and in 2015, that writer was C.K. Stead. C.K. Stead is one of New Zealand's foremost literary figures, a distinguished novelist, literary critic, poet, essayist and emeritus professor of English at the University of Auckland, Stead has won numerous awards and fellowships. He became a member of the Order of New Zealand in 2007 and is one of only two living writers to hold that honour. Internationally published and reviewed, Stead's major novels include Smith's Dream, All Visitors Ashore, My Name Was Judas, Mansfield, Talking About O'Dwyer, the Singing Whakapapa, and The Secret History of Modernism, alongside essays, criticism, and major poetry collections. Stead is known for his quick mind and frank views, a confessional voice, and an ease of prose that makes him both accessible and deeply meaningful. His singular place in the cultural life of this country was celebrated in this special session to end the festival, chaired by Dr. Ruth Harley. Ladies and gentlemen, to open this session by reading two poems, please join me in welcoming the 2015 Honoured New Zealand writer, C.K. Stead. Thank you, Ruth, and uh, thank you, everybody, for being here. I can't see you, of course, but I can hear you. Um, Ruth and I decided that uh, poetry is going to figure in our conversation, so I should actually begin by reading two poems, and the two I've chosen you'll see are relevant to what will follow. So they're both uh, tributes. The first is one uh, to Frank Sargison. Um, when I wrote this some time ago, I was experimenting with a sort of um, forward momentum uh, uh, forward momentum, I don't know, grammar, syntax, something. There wasn't very much punctuation. Um, and it's called A Warm Wind from the East. Our friend the novelist, 78 next week, he says he's written his last book, can't think anymore, can't write connected sentences, can't recall the plots of his favourite Dickens he used to rehearse scene after scene not even sometimes the names of his own novels, can't answer letters put down among cups, pills, other letters where forgotten one moment means the next, draws a total blank in a room full of books piled up to be knocked at a giddy turn across his unswept floor. But cats are fed, there's cheese in the fridge, tea in the caddy, he cooks himself vegetables and fish, a corner of the garden is good for tomatoes. The best anecdotes still surface. And whatever the losses, they don't include a wicked eye nor a good loud laugh. Tonight, the winds in the east, the warm, wet edge of a tropical cyclone driving waves and seaweed up on Takapuna Beach. And I walked there remembering the same wind 25 years ago when his garden was the other side of those green pages he wrote on. And if you went for a walk over the rocks to Thorns Bay, you might come back to lettuce, peppers, fruit in a bursting bag, even a pumpkin just inside your door and a note saying, come for a meal. 
well, that's over, and everything like a novel has a beginning, a middle, and an end, except that novels like life go on repeating themselves long after the garden's gone back to wilderness, the house to ruin, the old man to dust, and his last green sheet has flown off into the sagging hedge on the broad back of a wind that blows from the east. And the other one is also a tribute this time to Alan Curnow, uh, and the scene is Kari Kari on the West Coast. So we're going from the East Coast to the West Coast. And uh, after Alan died, uh, his batch there uh, in the bush about a mile up from the beach uh, was sold. And uh, I noticed, and I think it's still the case, the letter is, the name is still on the box, but uh, the W is missing, so it's spelled C-U-N-O. So this poem is called Kurnow, without a W. Uh, Kurnow. The name on the box on Lone Cowrie Road has a letter missing, standing perhaps for without, without the one who's gone on a very long journey. Under Nikau and Karaka, in the half-light or among Manaka and Kauri, Piwaiwaka flits and taunts the poet was her friend, but when the time came, she brought her unwelcome message. The stream had its say, but only an opal and silver. He was master and mentor, the hard mind, the cool, cool old man who wouldn't say his prayers or pay his dues, the long memory, the cleverest wit, the abominable temper, the diplomat. Today the beach has turned itself around a flat sand plain all the way out to Paratahi Rock. The lagoon is gone, sky high, improbable clouds float like fleeces, and from the rocks the ghost of a poet fishes for metaphor and cod. A big surf slams its door and opens it and slams it again. <clears throat> now the format's going to be a conversation between Carl and me and some readings. There won't be any questions, but there will be a book signing in the foyer later where the bookseller has an unprecedented selection of C.K. Stead's work available. So why don't we start, Carl, with 1955, which you told me determined the rest of your life. I did it in a number of ways. Now, well, 19, in January 1955, I got married, and Kay and I, we were, I was 22, she was 21. We moved into a flat on Takapuna Beach um, uh, for th uh, £3 pounds a week. Uh, it was um, a glassed-in veranda with a tiny kitchen and a bedroom and um, f facilities, you know, loo and bathroom and so on, across a little courtyard shared with another tiny um, flat and a single man's room, which was occupied from time to time by Jack Lazenby, who's just won the, um, the Prime Minister's Award for Fiction. Um, but more significant was that up and not far away uh, on Esmond Road was Frank Sargison. Um, I'd had contact with Frank uh, 
uh, I'd invited him along to talk to the students and uh, when I'd had poems in landfall, he'd written me letters, so I did know him a little. But during that year, we, we got to know Frank tremendously well and, uh, and that was a friendship that lasted and, you know, to the end of his life. Uh, but also, 1955 was the year when he uh, more or less rescued Janet Frame She'd spent most of her decade in and out of mental hospitals, and he said, you want to be a writer, you know, you, he, she seemed to be out and free. For the moment, he said, come and live in the, um, in the army hut in my garden. So, uh, you know, there was a strange sort of quartet of, of Kay and Carl and Frank and Janet, and, um, and very strange, but um, we did get on tremendously well, and... Janet actually is, is very flattering about it in her autobiography, the second volume, which she dedicates an angel at my table. I think she dedicated it to Frank and to Colin Kay. So there was that. That was, you know, my, if you like, my social and literary life. But that was also the year when I'd come back from training college and was enrolled to do an MA. And, um, and Kernow was, for me, the most important of my, my teachers. Uh, I mean, they're, in various ways, they're all important, but uh, Kernow was the most important, and he lived in Takapuna as well. Um, you know, this was, Takapu this was the North Shore before the Harbour Bridge, when it seemed as though more than half the significant New Zealand writers appeared to be, to be living there. Um, and, uh, and I became very close to uh, Alan as well. And in fact, during that year, which was very significant for him also because it was the year when he began his love affair with uh, a senior student, Jenny Cole, who became his second wife. And um, sometime during that year, uh, when he was teaching a course in 20th century literature and in poetry, and he and I were obviously getting on well, he came to me in the university cafe and he said, um, I've written a new poem, I wonder whether you'd mind taking it away and looking at it. Tell me what you think of it. I mean, I, you can't imagine what effect this had on me. I, I mean, to me, he was the great New Zealand poet and he was asking me to read his poetry. But that too was the start of something that went on virtually for the rest of, of Alan's life. Eventually, we were colleagues in the same department. Um, we were neighbours in the same street. Uh, and uh, he went on showing me his poems. And I, I suppose I became uh, the person who wrote most or most significantly about Alan's work over those, those years. So, yes, it was a very important... Um, a very important year in my life. When did you know you were a writer? How did you know? Oh, I, I started writing when I was about 14. And, um, and I knew that it was writing poetry, although quite early on I tried to write short stories, uh, fiction. But um, I knew that as soon as I discovered poetry, which was really only at secondary school, seriously, I, I knew that that was what, mattered to me more than anything else and that writing if I could write a poem that I felt was a good poem that was more satisfying almost than anything else so by the time I got to university I knew that um, 
that I, and in fact, I started publishing poems at the age of 18. I think my very first poem was published in Australia. Hmm. So by the time you were 22 and you were living down the road from Frank Sargison and Janet Frame, you were quite established. Well, I was established insofar as a 20-year-old newcomer can be established. I but mean, I was but established a, in the sense that they welcomed you into their tent. Oh, oh they, they were interested in me, as, in me as a writer. I mean, Frank had already written to me in response to poems in Landfall. And, uh, and Alan Kernow was interested in me in a, as a writer as well. What was Janet like? <laughs> Well, Janet, it's very hard to describe Janet. She, she was, I mean, the first thing to say is she was pathologically shy um, and she was hopeless w with uh, people she didn't know. So, and she, it was so bad that she, she looked uh, deficient. You know, her, her body language was terrible. She kind of shrank away. Um, but... So when, when we were first visiting Frank and ja Janet was living in the hut, for the first couple of times she was a shadowy figure who came into the room, didn't say anything, and just sat and listened. But by the third visit uh, she was beginning to get used to us. And very soon uh, she was entirely, uh, you know, a natural person. She was funny, witty, um, clever, entertaining. Uh, we played all kinds of verbal games. We constructed poems out of the first lines of anthologies. And, you know, I mean, we, we did all kinds of stuff, literary stuff. Um, but she could very quick, for, for example, Frank decided once the four of us were going to go to a party at, a, at I've forgotten where, never mind. Um, and we, we got to the party and then... Uh, we were there five or ten minutes, and suddenly Frank was looking around saying, Where, where's Janet? Of course, she'd just run away. She couldn't, she couldn't cope with the party. The other thing is that um, when we were in England, which was some years, you know, was maybe th three years later, and, and there'd been a gap. We hadn't seen her for all that time. She wrote to us that she was in the Maudsley Hospital, and would we come and see her? And we came, and then she sent out the nurse to say, um, send us away. So we went away. So then she wrote another letter, deeply apologetic, and said, please, uh, please come and visit me. So we went again, and then the nurse came out and said, Janet, will see Carl first. So I went in, and Janet, she was dressed. There was no need for her to be in bed. She was in bed with the uh, bed clothes right up to her, her neck, and huge dark glasses on. It was like talking to a blowfly, you know. <laughs> um, but very quickly the, the blanket came down and, and she was back to being natural Janet. And I, all, I mean, you know, there are all kinds of... It's a, a long story, our relations with Janet, but um, she was essentially great fun to be with. But there's no pretending that there wasn't a kind of... Uh, problem, a social problem for Janet. I remember I saw her once for 
the briefest of minutes, there was some kind of conference in Wellington, a writer's conference, and Janet was there, and somebody on the stage said, and how wonderful Janet Frame is here. She was gone. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the only time I ever saw her. You went to Australia. You did two years of your PhD in the UK, and then you came back quick smart. Yes. (laughs) Very quickly. Well, I found recently a letter I wrote to Frank Uh, While I was still in Australia and I hadn't even gone to England, and I said to him, I'm uh, I'm going to England for two years. That's that's it, I'm I'm coming back. And that's what I did. And um, partly I did it because I was enjoying being in England so much. I was terrified if I stayed any longer, I'd never come back. Uh, And I I had that um, ideal which seems um, slightly strange or naive now that I wanted to come back and be a New Zealand writer. You know, I wanted to, to be part of something that you called New Zealand or would call New Zealand literature. There had been, of course, I knew through the 19th and early 20th century, there had been occasional writers who were New Zealanders. Some stayed, some went most notably Mansfield, of course, and, and that, I knew that. But what Sarge, the reason I start with Sargeson and, and um, Kernow is that they had kind of created something more like a block of writers. Um, in 1953, when Sargeson turned 50, a group of 17 fiction writers uh, wrote a letter, full-page letter to Landfall, in which they said, you know, virtually you have created something that didn't exist before. You, you know, we, we acknowledge you as, as uh, responsible for this. And the parallel was Kernow had done his two anthologies, well, the same anthology increased in size, 1948-1951, and later he went on to the Penguin of uh, the two Caxton anthologies published in Christchurch and then the Penguin published in the UK. And... Um, so, you know, each of them had a, a Sargeson had a block of, of fiction writers and he kept contact with them all the time and Kerner had his block of poets. Uh, and somehow this created a scene and I, I was determined to go back and be part of it. But the, and they were also quite conscious of what they were doing, weren't they? They were quite articulate mm. about creating a, a national literature. They were, yeah. And, uh, and it does seem, well, you know, nationalism, we all know, is largely a bad thing, and literary nationalism too, probably. But, um, but it's, it was a necessary thing, you know. And, uh, and when I told my... I came back before I'd finished the PhD. I finished it back here. But uh, when I told my professor and supervisor, who was a very distinguished man, Elsie Knight, um, who was the editor of Scrutiny. He was the editor of the, you know, the major literary academic periodical of the time. Um, I said, I'm, I'm applying for a job going back to New Zealand. And he, he said, why, why would you do that? You're doing so well here. And I said, well, you know, I want an academic job. He said, you can have an academic job here. You know, we'll set you up in a junior lectureship. Um, don't, don't go running off. That only made me more scared than ever, you know. 
<laughs> and so you came back. Yeah. And thinking about it with hindsight, was it a good decision? Uh, in hindsight, it was uh, a good decision and a bad decision, depending on when I'm thinking about it. And uh, <clears throat> it's neither. It's I never really. I don't regret it, but the effect it has on me is I think of a whole parallel life I could have had, and I don't regret not not having had it. But I'm curious, what would it have been like? You know, how would it have been the same? How would it have been different? And I think when you talk about coming back to New Zealand or not in those days, it's, I know it's, it's somewhat the same now, but it's very, very different in that the world is so much smaller than it was then. Um, you went by sea. I mean, there were aeroplanes, but they cost too much. Everybody traveled by sea unless they were very rich. It took four and a half to five weeks. You took virtually everything you owned and put it in the hold. And I mean, it was such a business. Um, the, the, you did, never made telephone calls home. Uh, there was no, the idea of email, I mean, rapid, rapid communication was an email that would take about 10 days or a fortnight. Those blue ones? Yeah, yeah. the blue, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've, I remember sometime within the last couple of decades, I can't get time right now, but... Um, there was a man of unfortunate New Zealander leading a group on Everest and, and they were trapped there and the weather had, had it was a disaster oh, and, Rob and he was dying and he knew he was dying and he called his wife on the cell phone and you know it's, it's not proper to laugh but I couldn't help thinking imagine if Scott in the Antarctic had been able to phone his wife in London and say, look, darling, something terrible has cropped up and I'm afraid I won't be home. And please tell Mrs. Oates that her husband's just walked out in the snow. He doesn't seem to be coming back, you know. But, I mean, that's the difference. The, yeah. the, the world has shrunk and, you know, you, you get to England in 24 hours. So the decision now would not be so radical. And you've always had a plane ticket in your pocket ever since. Well, that's what you said, yes. You <laughs> said to me, true. you quoted um, the Kerno line, um, not I, some child born in... You said, you, you, you said you're the child born in, who's learned the trick of standing upright here, but always with a ticket in, plane ticket in your back pocket. True, isn't it? <laughs> it is true, I suppose, yeah. What yeah. was it like being a writer and a critic in New Zealand with the role that you chose for yourself or found yourself in? I'm not sure which. Well, it was a mixed thing um, because it was very lively and I got myself into a lot of trouble. You and did. I did. And, uh, and I'm sure that was 50% uh, my fault at least. Maybe it was 60 or 80, I don't know. <laughs> But, um, but I did get in a lot of trouble. But it was also a very lively scene. And actually, I, if, since we're going to intersperse poems, I have a poem that, that will sort of give you um, a, a complicated image of it. I have to partly explain, explain this poem. And usually poems are not good if you have to explain them. But, but this one, I think, is it, it does give you something of the literary scene. And it also illustrates something completely unusual about Alan Kernow. So 
watch for Alan Alan Curnow's appearance in this because Alan is generally thought of as a rather distinguished and rather removed and rather proper person, the son of a clergyman, a man who trained to be a clergyman himself and only realized he had to give it up when he didn't realize that God didn't exist. So, yeah. Um, But uh, you'll find, you'll see Alan turn up, but I'll explain the poem. Um, There were, of course, uh, three Morrises. There was Morris Duggan, Morris G and Morris Shadbolt. And Morris Duggan wrote me a letter. This was the days when we wrote one another letters, even in the same town. And he signed it Morris, and then he put a triple bracket, bracket, and he put G with a cross, Shadbolt with a cross, and Duggan with a tick. So I replied, and I signed a KS, and I put Keith Sinclair with a cross, Kendrick Smithman with a cross, and Carl Stead with a tick. So that's what this poem, that's what set this poem off. Now, to get the full beauty of this poem, uh, which is considerable, um, you have to, um, you have to know Shakespeare, you have to know Macbeth's famous lines, tomorrow, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day until the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. That's echoed at the start of the poem. I can hear a cell phone. And at the end, um, there is an echo of Henry IV, part two, the lines that are quoted on Catherine Mansfield's grave. But I tell you, my lord, fool, out of this nettled angel we pluck this flower, this flower safety. So if you've got all that, (laughs) here's the poem. To Morris and to Morris and to Morris, Duggan, Shadbolt, gee, how they load us down with fictions. And all our yesterdays maybe have lighted fools the way to Dostoevsky. (laughs) How many years ago was it? that Kurnow's bantams roosted in his macrocarpas, and he and I one midnight crept under the moon and swung on the branches, bringing those feathered half-wits down around our heads with a flapping and squawking that echoed over Big Shoal Bay. Do good poets make bad professors? Do many Morrises make light work as one Sargison made a summer? How many KSs could the North Shore harbour before the f- fall? I tell you, my lord fool, out of these nettle prophets we still pluck our safety pins. Um, <clears throat> so the point was partly to illustrate that there was a lively scene going on. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was deeply engaged with all these people um, you know, uh, Smithyman, Sinclair, Duggan, they were, they're all dead, of course. See, when you reach my age, you talk about your friends and most of them are dead. Um, but there was that lively scene, but there was also a lot of arguments and I wasn't always, uh, Kurnow used to uh, say that uh, one of my qualities was candor and candor is not always the right thing, really. Kurnow, as I said, he was the diplomat. He, he had the most outrageous um, opinions at times. You know, if you sat around a dinner party with him 
um, things that would have got him into all kinds of trouble, but he would never say them publicly, whereas I, if I, I would have a rush of blood to the head and <laughs> say it publicly. And sometimes you also rushed onto football fields, as I recall. Oh, well, that's true. You know, no, that, was, that was a bit of... Um, uh, that was a bit of public engagement that I, I'm very proud of. My one criminal conviction is that I was, <laughs> I was arrested on the field at when, the one time we managed to stop one of the uh, 81 Springbok Tour games. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, when we think about you as a writer, we think about you as a poet, we think about you as a critic. Um, I'm kind of interested in Kin of Place. I really enjoyed reading Kin of Place for, for this conversation. And I see you both as um, a, very, a, a very discerning critic, but also very conscious of your role as a critic. It's sort of a meta-criticism at the same time. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you saw that role. Well, I grew up at a time when uh, literary criticism was taken very, very seriously. It was, it was all, people were almost sort of puritanical about it. It was the, uh, the great age of um, T.S. Eliot, who was not only the great poet, but he was also the great critic. And he had a tremendous influence on the academic teaching of literature. And so, you know, when I did my PhD, um, I, I was, oh, man, oh, what can I say? I was just very conscious that I was doing something that required your f a total intellectual commitment, and it did require a kind of uh, truthfulness. Um, and truthfulness in literature uh, can get you into a lot of trouble, especially in a community the size of New Zealand. Um, so uh, that was an element in it. Um, not sure whether I'm answering your question. I, w I was not only a literary critic, but I became in New Zealand a social critic. Yes, you did. Mm. And you seem to have somewhat, I don't know, perhaps pulled back from that position. Is that right? No, I just got old. <laughs> <laughs> and too busy writing novels. <laughs> uh, I, um, yeah, I, I have... Um, I was too uh, dogmatic. I was re very opinionated. They were damn good opinions. <laughs> but um, but I, was, I was too emphatic, too forceful, too excited, really. And so um, it, I, I, a lot of the things I said were not wrong necessarily, but they could have said, been said more equivocally or more subtly. Um, and that, that's partly what got me into trouble. That's why I say part of the problem was myself. But part of the problem was also that New Zealand is, is a tiny relative to, you know, the, say the UK or the US. It's a relatively small community. And so you can acquire... I really discovered what it feels like to be a politician and to be characterized and to find that that characterization, which is only a small part of yourself, uh, is with you. With some people, it's with you for life, you know, and you, you have to live with that. But I did um, discover what, what hard lives politicians have, actually. Mm, didn't make you want to be one, though. 
I thought of it. I, <laughs> yeah, I, had, I, I often, like Keith Sinclair, who actually stood for Parliament, but I, I did because uh, I was very much engaged in politics. I was always um, a Labour Party supporter. And, and then during the period of the Vietnam War, um, I, that became an obsession. My opposition to the Vietnam War was just... You know, it was almost manic. <laughs> is that where Smith's Dream came from? It is, yes. Smith's Dream is my first novel. I'd written a number of short stories, um, but Smith's Dream was... It wasn't as people said... Some people said at the time was really a prediction of what's going to happen in New Zealand. It wasn't that at all. It was an exercise in what if. Let's just... It was, it was a political fantasy. Let's imagine that what's happening in Vietnam is, is happening here. How would you feel? What, 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 what would you do? Where would you stand? Would you take sides? Could you avoid taking sides? All that. Um, and so it was meant to have a lesson, to teach a lesson. It, um, it was somewhat uh, an imitation of Gra a Graham Greene novel, and I noticed again recently reading Sargison's letters that he wrote to somebody, if Stead goes on like this, he'll become the New Zealand Graham Greene. And I don't think he meant that altogether, um, you know, uh, favourably, because he had a, you know, slightly an idea of Graham Greene as a bit of a populist, you know. Uh, and um, I... I, I as time went by, I felt a little bit embarrassed about Smith's dream myself. Uh, it was a bit of a boy's own romp. Um, and one effect it had, teachers found that they had boys who couldn't be persuaded to read anything and you gave them Smith's dream and they romped through it. And, um, and so it, innumerable class sets were sold. It was an... For a period, I was known, you know, in literary and academic circles as a poet and critic. But at large, I kept meeting people who said, oh, CK said, you, you wrote Smith's Dream. Or once the movie had appeared, they said, you wrote Sleeping Dogs. Yes. <laughs> yes, I was glad I didn't make that mistake. It was close. But it did set you off... Um, maybe, uh, or at least I wonder if it set you off on a completely different approach to fiction when you came to do All Visitors Ashore, because that's a very different type of fiction. And it's your next novel, isn't it? It's just the next novel, yeah. but there was almost a 10-year gap yes. between, between the two. Um, well, it wasn't that um, Smith's Dream set me off writing a different kind of novel. It's really that the different kind of novel was native to me, whereas this was a novel, a sort of deliberately Graham Greene, almost John Buchan kind of novel with a purpose, and that was why it was written. Uh, when I began to write novels, as I would say, more seriously, then what came naturally to me was something much more sophisticated, what's called metafiction, where there's an element of consciousness in the novel itself that's conscious that it's a novel or it's a novelist conscious that he's writing a novel, that his consciousness somehow invades, the, it becomes a presence in the novel. So the next two I did... Um, the, Death of the Body? Yes. All Visitors Shore and The Death of the Body were both 
metafictions. I think, I still think All Visitors Ashore is a, is a sort of um, stylistic tour de force. And I thought recently when I reread the, de- I mean, mostly I, I never reread my own work, but I, I reread uh, The Death of the Body, sort of pr- preparing for this ordeal. And, and uh, I thought, you know, that I, I was, that, that novel's cleverer than I am now. I, could, <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought there's definitely a decline in old age. I couldn't do that now. <laughs> I thought it was really, you know, I was so admiring. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about Sister Hollywood, because in a way, Sleeping Dogs set you off on a journey with Hollywood, or with Roger Donaldson in particular. Well, Roger Donaldson, um, yeah, he, Smithstream did quite well. It was published in paperback and then, then in hardcover. And, uh, and then people start r- ringing uh, talkback radio and saying, have you read this novel, Smithstream? It's, there's this terrible prime minister, Volkner. This is clearly based on Rob Muldoon. Uh, and, you know, that word got about, and so the novel got a new lease of life, and then it was starting to sort of die away again, as novels tend to do. And then Roger made Sleeping Dogs. Um, and uh, he came and he was, you know, a, a, a very gorgeous young man with a lot of curls who came to my, hair, my room at the university and said, I want to make a, um, a movie of your novel. And I said, sure, you know, what, what do I need to do? And I suppose I signed some bits of paper. But I didn't believe for a moment that it would be made. But he was so such a clever fellow. And, of course, he's gone on to have um, a significant career in Hollywood, as has Sam Neill, who was just about to give up acting. You know, I, I always say two of the three of us became famous. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote the novel. <laughs> um, but uh, well, I did continue uh, my contact with, with Roger even after he went to Hollywood. And uh, he said he was interested in writing um, and making a movie of um, The Death of the Body. Uh, as I told you, he, he, he arranged, I was going through uh, and I stopped off at Los Angeles and he said, we'll have lunch together. And he said, right, we start at chapter 21. <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh my God, you know. But when I looked, of course, uh, chapter 21 was before everything that happens from chapter 1, 2, 3, you know. So all he was doing re- was restoring the... Uh, the, chronology the chronology into what the chronology would be in the movie. But, uh, and I wrote a script for that and nothing came of that. Um, but then uh, later on, he got very keen on the idea of Villa Vittoria, uh, a, a sort of European-based thriller, I wrote, quite a literary thriller, which was um, based partly on the character of the American poet Ezra Pound, who was a fascist during the war, and partly on the Banco Ambrosiano scandal. And Rogers could see a great movie in this, and I did write a script for that. And then when, um, uh, when I'd 
completed a draft. I then flew over to Los Angeles and lived with Roger for about 10 days and we worked on it together. Actually, I have a poem about that, if you'd like. Excellent. <laughs> Shall Excellent. we have a poem? Let's have a poem. Yeah. Um, I have to have the right glasses, though. Um, it's called Hollywood. <clears throat> Hollywood for Roger Donaldson. In winter sun, we lunch by the pool in a garden of oranges and lemons, palms and olives, where the chill of desert shadow signals snow in the mountains. Spring, you tell me, will flower purple in the courtyard, and in high summer, only the drift of mists up from the Pacific will temper hot winds down from the hills. All day with our script, we play the game of put and take. Each say we do this, sending me back to the keyboard, to the mysteries of slug line, cut to, action, fade. Evenings, we watch classic movies suggesting say we do's for tomorrow. My novels shrinking under our hands into scene and speak, the rest dropping away like ripe olives on the path to your front door. Last night, I dreamt those giant letters high in the hills spelt gollywog, and the tall palms running seaward on sunset were fountains. Will our movie be made, I asked the ocean, and heard clear beyond wave break the budget whistle in its cage. <laughs> <coughs> so... Well, you know all about budgets. and uh, I know and, budgets and, whistling in cages, that's yeah. for sure. And, and, I, um, and I, uh, I certainly have made more. I haven't made a lot, but I've certainly made more out of movies that were never made than out of the one that was made. <laughs> you know, because uh, once you become reasonably professional about it, then um, if people want an option on a on a novel, they pay for it, you know, annually. And so it's quite good to have people uh, taking an awful long time over eventually not <laughs> making a, a movie. But <laughs> meanwhile, you know, the option... And also, I, was, I made sure by the time Villa Vittoria came along that um, I didn't write a script this time without being paid for it first. Ah, uh, I got cunning after a while. Yes. So I guess the sort of thing that we could wish you was may all your options be long ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, better than no options, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. I'm quite interested in Catullus mm. and who is Catullus and what does he do for you? Catullus, of course, is the Roman poet, um, uh, but uh, Quite early on in my literary career, um, I was an established poet by this time, but, but still relatively early, um, I devised or discovered uh, the device of using the persona of Catullus in order to write poems, which sometimes were quite close to translations of actual Catullus poems, but many many times were, took something out of a Catullus poem and made it over into a complete, something completely different. And sometimes they were, um, they bore almost no relation to a Catullus poem at all except I was using his name. So what the advantage for this, for me, the advantage for me in this was that 
Um, I'm not temperamentally a confessional poet. In other words, you know, there was a fashion in the 60s for poets like Robert Lowell and um, I was going to say John Betjeman, but that's not his name, begins with B. Um, uh, and there was, a, there was a fashion in America for um, confessional poets. They were usually either drunk or mad or both, and the drunkenness and the madness or both featured prominently in their poems, which all first person, you know. And I didn't have that, that, that sort of temperament at all. But this gave me a persona where I could go quite, quite close to the edge on all kinds of matters which would normally be private and confessional matters and which sometimes had happened to me and sometimes were totally remote from my experience. So I had a wonderful freedom. Nobody knew whether had this happened to Catullus or had it happened to Carl or had it happened to neither? Was it just an invention? You know, it left me an area that was an area of freedom. Yes, I think it's interesting that you used it that way. And now I'm going to enjoy myself by going off script and ask you the question that I've wanted to ask you. Now, see, the thing is, <laughs> this, this event put me in mind of it being a kind of retrospective. And one of the um, conversations we had about it, you seemed quite anxious that I should know that there'd been a book published every year and it was still happening. So what are you working on? Ah. <laughs> well... Uh, I was always also told that Carl would evade any question he didn't <laughs> like. <laughs> well, it's a complicated question. Uh, there's one sense in which you're always, if you like me, you go on writing poems, you're always writing a new, a new book of poems. Uh, and it's just really a question of when you cut off and say, look, this, is, this seems finished. So there is a book of poems, and at any moment I could say, okay, that's enough. There is a new collection of essays which is very much like the collections of essays that have preceded it, um, answering to the language, um, the writer at work, book self. And this one, I think, will be called um, Self Life. Shelf Life. Shelf Life. So it's like book self, but it's shelf life. And that's finished. That's uh, with AU Press. It's just gone to AU Press now. So I could say I've, I've answered your question adequately, but it is true, if, if you want me to be truthful, that in last year I was in Paris and I had said, first of all, I'd said, Risk is my last novel. I'd said it at the launch in London. This is my last novel. It's finished. Then I start to say to myself, well, maybe there'll be another novel, but if there is, it will be entirely an Auckland novel. Because I'd write, like to write another one. You know, one of the things I loved about a review by Susan Graham, of all people in the Herald, all those years ago, was she said, of all visitors ashore, she said, Auckland is never before in poetry or prose. And I thought I'd love to write an, an, an entirely... Auckland novel. So that was sort of having said I wouldn't write another one after risk, that was in my back pocket. And then I was in Paris uh, in, in the summer and I got an idea 
for a fiction set in Paris. And I began to write it, and it got longer and longer, and I came home to New Zealand and went on writing it. And then uh, it, it, it took place in summer, and then it got to autumn, and I thought I've got to be in Paris in autumn. So, so I, I've got the cheapest possible seats on a plane. And As always, there was a ticket in the back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> and I... I flew to Paris and uh, and spent a few weeks in a hotel there and back again and went on with this novel. And so you could say that that's also a current project, but at the moment I've gone off it, so I don't know whether it'll... So there you are. There's a, there's a definite book of essays. There's a book of poetry which is shaping up. And there's a novel which may go somewhere or nowhere. And that's, that's the complete picture. Pretty good picture. <laughs> <laughs> we have to wrap our session up. And I know you'd like to read some poems before we do that. And I think that's what we should do. Okay, yeah. Um, the three poems, one, one is a um, three shortish, they are all short poems. One is a Catullus poem, and um, it's when uh, my cat Zach died. I thought I'd write him a, a, a little um, elegy uh, in the style of Catullus. And c the most famous Catullus poem is the one that he wrote at the graveside of his brother with the most most quoted line, Frater Awe Atque Wale, brother, hail and farewell. So I wrote, wrote a little um, elegy for, for Zach, which I called Cat Stroke Alice. <clears throat> Zach's dead, buried with his brother Wallace beside the carport under the panga. Zach of the goldfish eyes and nice smelling fur. Who when, who, when I had a problem with a poem, slept on it. Who lived to put his paw print on a valued citation. Who, in his dying days, jumped to swipe at a passing moth and missed. Zach the radical. Zach the bed crowder, the window leaper, the lateral thinker. Zach, the head-first rat-eater, is dead, is laid to rest, has met his match. Frater, Awe, etc. Black Zack, Zack the Knife. <clears throat> and the second of these three short poems is uh, a, a poem to Kay called You. Our friend's wedding. I'd lied, called it a funeral to get army leave so I could be with you. It was a surprise, a present, and your blush of pleasure cheered me like a crowd. So here we are on the step above the happy couple who will one day divorce, looking into the future, which is now. Ten friends together in that photograph, 50 years on, and four are dead. Who will be next? Who will be last and put out the light? It's time to tell you again 
how much I loved the girl who blushed her welcome. Forgive my trespasses. Stay close. Hold my hand. It's beautiful. And third, uh, you'll be surprised to hear, is a poem about myself. <laughs> it's called CK. There's a stead I recognize only by his picture in the papers and what's said of him behind the lines. Has my name, my face, my such as they are, achievements. Doesn't smile often and when he does, they say, watch out. Doesn't suffer fools or anyone gladly. <laughs> no, no, I protest. This is not the man who eats my lunch, reads my newspaper, sleeps in my bed, but who's listening? The world's sure it knows you better than you know yourself. One day, I'll meet the bastard, surprise him, introduce myself. Hello, CK, I'm Carl. We haven't met Let's keep it like that, he says, unfriendly, and turns away. <laughs> and now we call on Anne O'Brien to come and close the festival. And we stay sitting here. Extraordinary. It's been the most astonishing five days. I can't tell you what a privilege it is to work on this festival for uh, me and my team who have worked extremely hard. I also can't tell you quite how exhausted we are right now. But also incredibly exhilarated by the most astonishing array of writers and conversations and stories. And we've traveled across continents and through time zones and pondered and laughed and it's just been wonderful. And to finish uh, by honoring one of our own is, is a wonderful thing. The festival this year has uh, decided that we actually want to gift something to our honoured writers. In the past, we've had celebrated through the session, but we want them to, to have some tangible thing as a memory. And we have commissioned um, Coromandel artist Chris Charteris, who will retrospectively for our previous writers and has crafted tonight for Carl, um, a Ponamu paper knife which is not only obviously beautiful for a writer to have, but also uh, captures the idea of the power of words. And Carl, if I could just ask you to come forward, we would like to present this to you. Thank you very much. Well, this is extraordinary. Well, I can say it here. <laughs> uh, um, no. I, I, really, I really haven't got anything to say except that I'm immensely grateful both for the opportunity, you know, and uh, so thank you, Anne, and, and all your team, um, and uh, thank you all for being here, and as for the Punamu, that, that is just, uh, uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm lost for words, and that doesn't happen often. <laughs> <laughs> And I should say that Chris Charteris is represented by FHE Galleries who have been very supportive uh, in gifting. 
these uh, taonga to our writers. So it, it calls on me to now close the festival, and I know you're all probably desperate to get away. Carl will be signing outside. There is an unprecedented, as Ruth has said, collection of books of Carl's titles out there. So do stay and take a moment to speak with him. I can tell you, obviously, estimated attendance at the stage, because we haven't quite tallied up the headcount on those mad free sessions, and I hope you weren't turned away too often from the doors. But at the moment, it looks like estimated attendance for 2015 will top 60,000, mm. which is um, <laughs> over 10% increase on last year, and just, as I say, extraordinary. It's been an astonishing five days. It is our privilege to do this for you. I hope you take away from it much sustenance for the year ahead and prepare for the 11th of May 2016 when we can do it all again. Thank you and good night. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website writersfestival.co.nz.